How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I am Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 110. Now, I was going to reaffirm what I just said a minute ago, Zeke. This is like our third, fourth take. <laughs> this is probably this the most podcast. takes we've ever done. I know, we just kept... For a podcast. We just kept having issues. Like, I realized my mic just wasn't recording whatsoever. Mm. And then we did a second take, and, and your audio just, like, shot up like a rocket. Yeah. So, so we're, we're looking just... good now. Chug along making content, but yeah, that is the, there you go, 110 took the most takes to get underway. I don't I think you've ever taken four times to get started, so. No, well, what the point I was going to make is that it's already been 10 weeks since our 100th episode, which is like, pretty mm. crazy. Like you said, what, two, two and a half months, you said? Yep. Yeah, jeez. It's a lot of time. Um, yeah. But we're not, we're not artificial, Zeke. We're not going to. I should start gearing up for the episode 200 shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I like that. Yeah. But um, we're not artificial, Zeke. We're not, I'm, we're not... I'm really happy with how those shirts come out. I've got to. Yeah, uh, I got to address the uh, uh, potentially selling those. Shirts. Right. The, the monetization because people want to. People want to buy them. Yeah. Yeah. We actually actually got a bit of a fanfare, which was nice. Um, yeah. I actually, I have a funny story when um because I was wearing the shirt when we did the interview with um Stephen Mahalovich and Desmond Richardson from The Crossing. How we were walking to the studio and I, you know, I, I was meeting them for the first time. So I was trying to give them equal FaceTime, but Desmond was like literally directly behind me. So I kept trying to turn my head to try and include him in the conversation. And he's like, wait, stop moving. Stop moving. I'm trying to read the back of your shirt. <laughs> so he's counting all the films that we've done. I was like, oh, that's pretty nifty. So yeah, I think yeah. it came out good. No, yeah. I've definitely got to, um, uh, address that. Um, maybe, maybe through our websites or, yeah. uh, saw it, some shirts. Yeah. We really got to get an Instagram account. I don't know why I've never done that. Yeah, because it always just goes through a clicker on my end. But um, you're right. It's probably best to have a dedicated page. And then um, we don't monetize the show in any way, shape, or form. And that's fine. It's not like it's an expensive show <laughs> to produce no. <laughs> the Cinema Side Podcast. But um, uh, yeah, you're right. Maybe it's time we look into that shirts and all that. Oh, jazz. just a little. Like, uh, I mean, the thing was the shirt was purely made for. Uh, just as a gift to you and you know obviously yeah, wearing true. it out like you said wearing it out in, in public has actually created a couple of people at least a few people have piqued their interest on wanting to acquire one and yeah um i mostly just like making shirts because i like making shirts designing shirts more than anything but um, maybe it's your passion no it's just a nifty little hobby i think yeah, fair but enough. um yeah no I'm, I'm really happy with how they turned out um hopefully i didn't ruin mine the other night when we were uh, having a good night out um, apparently a lot, ah, of, right. a lot of beer got poured on me. No, you took, <laughs> you, I remember distinctly you took your shirt off okay, before there we happened. Go. <laughs> um, big tangent to start this episode. Yeah, but, I know. It's uh, taken a while for us to get to our quote of the week, Zeke. Now, uh, for episode 110, this is a 2010 film. Okay. Your last one. My last Zeke, one. The back of you. You were seven for two. So if you get this correct, you get a high distinction. You get 80%. Okay. So, fingers... Crossed, um, and I actually wrote several quotes here because this is a very quotable film. Okay, so you've got plenty of chances here. Are you ready, Zeke? Mm-hmm. If you want something bad, you have to fight for it. Step up your game, Scott. Break out the L word. Lesbians. Those are two lines, by the way. Two different characters. I believe this is a uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Very nice. Yeah, the Scott kind of gave it away, didn't it? <laughs> um, See, I thought it was vague enough because I know you don't really like this film. No, I'm probably one of the controversial objectors of this. Not not object. I'm just very seldom on this film. I know okay. this film gets 
a huge amount of love and right. fanfare, and I just never quite clicked with this film. Mm. Um, even on, I think I've watched it twice, but maybe pushing it under a critical lens might be the way to go. Um, mm. I'm sure uh, we're probably due for another Simon Pegg film. We haven't really... That's true, yeah. And, and we did vow this year to do more films that, between the two of us, we have differing controversial opinions. Mm. So that might be a good one to include well, in that Maybe list. if we revisit the countdown through the decades retrospective, it might feature on the poll. Yeah, and... that's that's not a bad one in terms of representing 2010 films. It's obviously very early in the decade. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's not a bad one. The other quotes I had were, you punch me in the boo, prepare to die, obviously... And chicken isn't vegan. <laughs> I love I love the quotes. Well, there you go, Zach. You got your high distinction. Eight out. Thank you. Eight out Thank of ten. You. Is that the highest score so far? Probably. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Now you have to go easy on me for the next ten because <laughs> I can't be embarrassed. <laughs> well, to be fair, they are from the last ten years of film. Yeah, that's true. It's probably going to be really easy, actually. Mm. You know what? That's what it is. It's getting easier the closer we're getting to today's today. End. Um, yeah. yeah, speaking of films, Jake, have you caught anything during the week? I have not. I've been busy platinuming Crash Bandicoot 4, which That's is a full-time job. Okay, I haven't <laughs> caught that much myself. I've actually caught two films in the last week other than the film of the week mm. and another film, but we won't talk about that on this episode. Well, um, I, th- I think two. it will naturally come into play um, um, as a director's corner later yeah, in the show. But, but obviously we'll, we'll that, try and yeah. avoid yeah too much from that discussion mm. um but the other two films i caught were both uh films tied in with our award season topic um oh, okay. i caught right, nice. um the documentary my octopus teacher which you talked Very a little nice. bit about last week currently and, shortlisted for an oscar nomination yep. Yep. and i adored this film this mm. film was one of the best nature documentarian films i've ever watched um I love the interpersonal relation of it uh, that it has between the filmmaker and, and the, the, the content. Um, it follows a, doc, a nature documentarian who's going through sort of a mental rut and has lost his love and passion for nature documentaries mm. and he spends a year um, back near where he grew up and develops a very kinship relationship with an octopus. Okay. Um, See, I heard this was months ago. I heard I was having drinks with some, and they weren't even mates. Like I was meeting him for the first time, but they were all film students. So, like you know, our tutors were like, "Oh, look, here's an alumni guy. Meet these guys," and they were all just raving about this film. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "This is really interesting." And I never got around to it. It's, it's still on Netflix. Yeah. It still is, and I would absolutely give it a watch if you have a, a spare afternoon. It's mm. fascinating. It's short, yeah. Like 90 80, minutes? 85 type? minutes, oh, yeah. perfect, yeah. So, um, it's really great. And I don't want to delve too much into it because, yeah, it's something you've just got to watch and experience. But mm, okay. um, it's very personable. Like, it's a mixture between, obviously, that observatory style and performative because there's only one piece to camera and that's, you know, the filmmaker. Okay. Um, so very participatory. Very participatory yep. and performative and, and, yeah, but still has that nature observe side. Mm. Um, and the coverage he gets is is insane. It's insane, the stuff that he manages to capture. Right. And the quality in which he captures it. Um, I remember when, um, this was years ago now, actually you remember when I did the beach gig, I was getting drone mm. footage of a 
like a beach uh, barrier. And when I was recording the installation of it, there was a guy who had come from Sydney who was doing a documentary about like shark culling and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And he had this entire rig. He had a GH4, I think, or a GH something, which we're mm-hmm. f- familiar with that camera um, or that brand of camera. And he had this big like tanker thing that he installed the camera into to get underwater shots, like really clean, pristine. I was like, that's really fascinating. So, Well, the, yeah. the fascinating thing is is this documentary has kind of a, the unique edge of being very much focused on the, the lifespan because mm. this octopus this particular species only lives for a year. Oh, wow. So okay. it's a very um, interpersonal experience, but we literally, you know, he meets this octopus very close to... Um, like birth? Not birth, but probably about 50 days into its life. Okay. So he gets pretty much the whole year with this octopus. Oh, God. And I'm, I'm afraid to watch the ending now. Um, this is going to be sad. <laughs> and it's very interesting to not only watch a nature documentary that um, doesn't go too much into the factual information of um, the animal, mm. very much just the relationship between the person and the animal, and also to just follow the world, This like purely follow the world this animal lives in and how yeah. it operates, and to fo- have a documentary that focuses so specifically on just one animal, not... A collection of animals right it feels more personal yeah like i've only seen a couple of documentaries that kind of follow this follow suit with the same thing but most of them focus on the person's interaction with that one animal rather than okay this person very much for most of the time is a fly on the wall and develops this relationship by simply observing um like in the more dramatic parts of this octopus's life the human never interferes. The human just watches it unfold. Mm. Um, and that's interesting. That's where like, the observational side of it comes in. Yeah, because, you know, as a seasoned nature documentarian, he knows that his impact, he needs to avoid making that impact on this mm. animal because that's not right and that's not natural. Yeah. And it's not from a filmmaker standpoint. It's more yeah. from a conservation standpoint. Okay. So it's not even just a case of affecting the story. It's... It's purely, like, ethical more than wow, anything. Wow, okay. Um, that sounds awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. It's absolute. I could totally see why it's shortlisted. Yeah. Um, and it'd be interesting to look back on the year of, of documentaries and see if anything actually affected me as much as that film did. Interesting. The other one I caught was uh, News of the World. Oh, uh, you've seen it. Nice. I did see it. And it was... So I've heard a lot of good things about it, but I'm curious what you think. Um, I made a joke. Um, I know you don't have Snapchat anymore, but when I was watching it, do you still send me Snapchat? I do. Oh uh, my god, <laughs> I must have like two months worth of Snapchats. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I just oh, wrote, no. "Oh look, it's Tom Hanks playing another good guy, um, just yeah, a genuine yeah. good guy." And you really, you unfor- really can't stand his casting in it, like any of these films. I just, to me, it's like it's like in this one, it's like. He's just another... He's just Tom Hanks being, like, another good guy just in a different setting. And right. Unfortunately, I just didn't get... I didn't dislike it, I think, the cinematography. It's another one of those sort of... It's so funny that it's done by Paul Greengrass because it, it very much sits in the same sort of um, 
Captain, where how, same way I felt about Captain Phillips because right. the film isn't doing anything wrong, but it's also not doing anything new, unique, or interesting to okay. really warrant my attention for two hours. Like, I don't feel like the film subverts your expectations. I don't feel like the film uh, challenges you. Uh, I feel like it's very much like, oh, it's award season, time to throw a Tom Hanks film in there um, that's, you know, conventionally made correctly but doesn't really try anything new. I mean, westerns have been around for... Some of the best westerns of all time are things that... Are, whether they're an Odyssey epic or they're something that subverts your expectation, there's always mm-hmm. something different. And this film... Unfortunately, I feel like in years to come will just be kind of forgettable. Okay. Yeah, it definitely looks like like the Ford v Ferrari of this award season. Absolutely. And that it'll probably be like the ninth slot in the Best Picture yeah. run. But um, it just comes back to it's like when we look back on Tom Hanks' life, will this film even get a mention? Right. Probably okay. not. That's, that's fair enough. I've still got to see. I do want to see it really badly. And um, House of Visuals because I've heard that the cinematography is pretty excellent in it. Yeah. I wouldn't like say it's like artistically um, it's not like showy it's not showy Um, it's not like Malcolm and Marie where they they clearly shot it being like man this looks great everyone's gonna think it looks great yeah Um, unfortunately yeah yeah yeah. it's not like it's not showy but yeah it's good like it's it's great knowledge and things really good low light stuff Mm. like really good low light cinematography um but uh the performances are solid um the little girl i'm not sure what helena is in gal something like that she's great okay um but he's just you know he's he's solid like he's always solid like i'm not saying he's a bad bad actor by any way shape or form but i do think that majoritively i mean i think i've maybe watched one film where he's the antagonist well, and that was The Circle. And It's so funny that you mentioned that. Because yeah. I looked it up. I just looked up on Google. Has Tom Hanks ever played a bad guy? And there's a Variety article where he talks about it. And he literally says... "My pl- This is the quote from him. The plan is, I'm playing Colonel Tom Parker. I guess this is for an upcoming film. And silence all your stupid questions about why will I never play a bad guy, he joked. Although Hanks... Uh, this is the article now. Hanks said that this would be his first villainous role. His little scene at tech thriller The Circle saw him as an evil cultish CEO. So they acknowledge that that's kind of his first role, but he's going to play Yeah, but even in role. The Circle, it's like Patton Oswald is like very clearly like the more overt bad guy of the two. Is he? Well, he's more like the mustache twirling one. Like I still think... Okay. Uh, like Tom Hanks is still the bad guy. Right. In that, but he's a little. He, obviously, he's got like the more Steve Jobs esque. Like, if Steve Jobs was a villain, gotcha. Yeah, a lot of people argue he is a villain. <laughs> well, Jobs. I'd say job. The Jobs film doesn't like take away from his villainous behavior. Right. Yeah. No. God, they definitely what a great it. film that is. Now that's a great film. <laughs> Go, Danny Boyle. Danny um, Boyle. Think, think about Danny Boyle. I think Liam just watched Sunshine, Sunshine for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I could see like, I don't want to like, but it's true. He often plays it and I, it comes back to people, you know, he's been branded with the most likable guy in Hollywood and he's just seems to always play relatively kind, ca- kind and courageous. Like he always plays courageous characters too. Right. Um, 
And his character in News of the World is just... I mean, his job is he goes from town to town and reads the news to illiterate people. Right. Like, that's the first 10 minutes. You're like, okay, it's another good guy. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing a nice thing. Um, but yeah. I feel, I, I feel like News of the World for me is going to be... It's going to be like the Call of the Wild of last year where it's objectively not a great film, but I actually enjoyed it more than I should have. Yeah, bro. So, we'll see. I do it's, want to get to it very soon, though. Yeah. It's nice that it's like he's starting to bridge into not um, middle-aged... We're starting to bridge into he's more, you know, old veteran, old man. old man sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, you. I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's the Ford v. Ferrari of this year's award season. Yeah. It's going to be the one that... Conventionally, it it deserves to be there, but it also probably had the most money thrown, and it had the best producer campaigns, best marketing. Like it's it's right. It's Netflix's push horse, whereas something more like, you know, subtle like My Octopus Teacher, which will probably still get you know the same sort of award recognition, but doesn't require as much of a push because of how amazing it is. Right. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I I reckon it will get in simply because it's so easily accessible. Yeah, I'm talking about octopus, uh, but yeah, fingers crossed. I do. I will see it, and I am looking forward to it. Well, the other film Zeke is the only one that I've seen this past week. Of course, is a film from Thomas Vinderberg, but we'll talk more about that in the second half of the show. No worries. Very exciting. Well, do you have anything you'd like to add in career updates before we move into um, the second yeah, half? Yeah, there's a couple things. So um, we actually haven't done this in the last few weeks because we've been doing all the awards mm-hmm. season updates and stuff. Um, so I want to talk a bit about home run food in Fremantle, which is a bit like a basically a burger joint in Freer. I've done some photography and video for their socials, so if you go on their social media, some of that's mine. And probably a little bit more exciting is um, a music video came out that I was kind of involved in. So this is uh, the band Those Who Dream, and it's their song "Tension Headache." Their music video is now out on YouTube and mm-hmm. everywhere. And uh, they're a pretty big hit locally, which is really exciting. And uh, I did some of the drone shots that you might find in that video so the very first shot and then they, they sneak it in again like midway through like a very quick snap shot um is that's my drone nice <laughs> that has since been repaired so um that was not the uh that was not what destroyed it <laughs> initially that was my fault but they were like blasting um they had a guy a pyro a pyro What's the term? This is a term like a fire expert on mm-hmm. set. Pyrotechnician. Yeah, pyrotechnician. Thank you. That's it. And um, so they had this big box that just shot fire into the air, and I felt a little weird having the drone hovering right above this big fireball. <laughs> but but it was all worth it. Water was your undoing, not fire. Yeah, exactly. It's all the elements. Like, they're after me. <laughs> so um, yeah. So that's out now. Those who dream tension headache. It's very good. Check it out. And the song itself is on Spotify and stuff. No so. dramas. Well, go. it is time for us to move into our film of the week and latest director's corner. But, Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? Well, the director we're looking at, as I mentioned, is Thomas Vindenberg. Or Vin- Vindenberg? I'm assuming he's Vindenberg. Vindenberg. We're, we apologize if we get that wrong. Ah, oh, that's all right. I'm not apologizing. Mm. <laughs> and the film we're watching this week is The Hunt. <laughs> Lucas. 
Forrørsminister. Fisk eller hvad? Så får du en kugle i, i panden. You are not a sick person, are you? Du har ikke gjort noget. Hvorfor lå du min far? Hvad er det, du fortsætter, der er sket? Det er dem, der er blevet syge i hovedet. Vil du sige noget til mig? Du er helt byen, der har hørt på dig, mand. Kindergarten's teacher world collapses around him after one of his students, who has a crush on him, implies that he committed a lewd act in front of her. This is our latest naughty, naughty. director's corner by Thomas Vintenberg, and this uh, is a Danish filmmaker. Yeah, and I think our first foreign filmmaker director's corner? Question mark. Uh, we didn't do Fonzo Caron. No, you yeah, might be true. right on that. Our first like non-American or British. No, well, Parasite. Yeah, Bong Joon Ho was that was a director's corner. corner no. Although he probably um, will get one eventually. Oh yeah, we could totally do like memories of murder. Well, especially now with SBS on demand, oh, a streaming true. service in which we both watched this yes, uh, yes. film again. Um, we figured yes, out it's me. you know between this and Apple iView, they've both got uh, free streaming services in Australia. Is Apple three in Australia? Apple iView, yeah. Oh, uh, iView. Apple iView. I'm thinking uh, sorry, of ABC iView. iView. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say I'm thinking of Apple. Although I think my mum got like a year free subscription to Apple. So I might have to check that out and watch like Cherry. But uh, yeah, so we found this film on there with a bunch of Bon Joon Ho films um, on there well, too. Well, it's cool because they're doing a bunch of Blu-ray releases. They're doing a collection in, yeah, I think, May. They're releasing like all of these, including films I still haven't seen like um, Barking Dogs Never Bite. I'm mm-hmm. keen on that set, man. Oh my God. So yeah, yeah. Obviously, this is a film that you talked about on the podcast God knows how long ago. Um, well, I first watched this before we even started the podcast. So from day one, I've been sort of champing to do it one week. And ironically, it was it was actually kind of... It wasn't even me pitching it to you. We just sort of stumbled upon this director that we wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Of course, his new film, Another Round, is in cinemas now. It's in the shortlist for Best International Film at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, the film that we both saw together a few days ago. Yep. We're going to talk about it somewhat in this discussion, uh, but mostly for another day. And we're like, oh my god, this is the guy who directed The Hunt. Are you kidding me? So, Yeah, so obviously looking through um, his filmography, he has a collection of feature films. I think upwards yes, of he's done a lot. 11 or 12 films um, dating as far back as um, 98, it looks like. So he's been around for a long time. Mm. Um, and this is definitely the film that is probably most synonymous with his success. Um, okay. If you look at his filmography, I think it's definitely the most uh, accessible and viewed, and most positively reviewed. Right. Um, oh, right. Like a like letterbox like popularity. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a pretty great film. Um, mm. Now, obviously, yeah, this is it's interesting to talk about his style, seeing as we've both only caught two of his films, but you really can. I think with two films, you really can gauge a director's sort of style and direction. Um, and it's it's interesting because both of them will, you know, tie back to Mads Mikkelsen, actually multiple actors. Yeah, multiple. At least three of the four leads in another round are in this film as well. In the uh, Thomas Bo Larson is in both. Yep. Um, he respectively plays um, the father of the daughter in this film and the sports teacher. 
In another round? Lars Ranth, I believe, is the other... Right. Who's uh, sort of the, the champion guy who's... He's always he's always on um Lucas's side throughout the mm-hmm. film. He's a... I think he's his... Bro- I want to say brother, but... Oh, okay. Or brother-in-law, maybe. Um... I think they have a rela- uh, they do have some form of relationship. I think it is brother. Interesting. Um, oh no no, um, he's the godfather of. Uh, oh, so I thought you were talking about the actors. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, yeah, <laughs> got confused. Yeah, um, um, yeah, the god. He's the godfather of of Lucas's son. Yes, because he makes that comment when he arrives. So this is a, this is an interesting film because um, I actually think you might be right. I think those these both both films are shot in this. Like you made a joke about. Um, at the start of another round, that they both they both films start with a lake, and I wouldn't be surprised with a bunch they, of characters cheering, celebrating. I might honestly, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they were shot in the same sort of location. Um, Danish cinema is a little bit of a uh, anomaly in sort of my knowledge. I'm not mm. very familiar with that area, even though it's very prominent and very. Um, you know, quite huge sort of Danish film and and that whole Eastern Europe cinema I'm not super um knowledgeable on. I don't right. think as I think, opposed to like I think these two films might be the two feature like feature films I've watched from Danish cinema. I don't think okay. I've watched too much from them. I think I watched a short back when we were in university, but um yeah, it's a bit of a bit of an anomaly for me. So it was really interesting to kind of watch this region's approach to stuff, mm. um, which sometimes I think strays away from the conventional. Yeah, in in a fair few ways. I mean, it's it's still a very great, compelling mm-hmm. sort of story. So in terms of like script writing, there's nothing to. I guess it is quite well, dry, but. This kind of leads perfectly into what I wanted to talk about in terms of a director. So the thing that um, Thomas Vindenberg is quite famous for, along with Lars von Trier, is that those two discovered and pioneered a filmmaking movement in 1995 called Dogma 95. And the premise behind this movement is that they create films, basically completely stripped down films that focus solely on story, themes, and performance, like an actor's performance. And they strip away any use of special effects, elaborate technology, and it's sort of a middle finger to uh, basically the way studio films are made nowadays. That it's a way to bring back power to the to the directors as auteurs. So you look at something like a Marvel film where every shot has like visual effects on it, painted in the way that like a director couldn't possibly have that much influence on. It was probably a producer who organized that. Mm-hmm. And, the way we talk about Captain Marvel, how like the directors didn't even have a say in the fight choreography mm-hmm. or the whatever that story was. But I think it's like a movement against that. And you can totally see it in mm. these two films, this very stripped back. It's sort of it's like a cinema, cinema purist movement. Yeah, exactly. The word purist is a thousand percent what, what I would um, use to describe this. So they're sort of like Scorsese's number one fan, basically. <laughs> um, well, even Scorsese he uses effects and lots of elaborate well, that's camera dollars and yeah. wonders and stuff. Very valid point. Um, so actually, yeah, they're probably more purist purist. Um, you would say they'd be probably closer closer akin to people like um, the Duplasses and stuff like that. More. Mm, um, that's a good comparison. If you were talking about a westernized version of them. Um I can see that in both films. It's very present. Um, 
Uh, obviously, the grounded locations of both, both films take place in very small societies. Mm, um, little towns and... Little microcosms, local yeah. yeah. Um, particularly The Hunt focuses more on the town and social dynamic of yep. the whole... A society rather than because obviously it's a huge focal point of this film mm. but it definitely does give power back to performances i think um mads mickelson gets a, a full opportunity to showcase sort of his range and yeah. you know um he's such an int- he's always been such an interesting looking person um he's mm. not someone you would conventionally put in he's the like he's the he's kind of a perfect sort of mascot for that cinema purist ideology because he's not conventional in the way he looks or the way he even the way he performs is far more quieter and reserved and um i'm talking about not only you know the the performances he does for vindenberg and both but Mm. his westernized performances i mean right probably most people nowadays would associate him with casino royale would probably be his Oh, it'll be Hannibal Lecter. That's, or Hannibal Lecter. And that's he, a thousand percent what people know him for. Um, in which he doesn't... It's his reservation and his, mm. and his quiet nuance. So it's probably why he's such a good... You know, when you think of Hannibal, like Hannibal Lecter, obviously that was... I imagine he drew a lot from Hopkins' performance mm. in, the, in the 90s, which was that quiet menace character. And he definitely carries that yeah. mantra there. And to have him in a film where they kind of take sort of this um, assumption that he has kind of got like, he's got kind of a villain-esque sort of presence about him and to completely flip Mm. it on its head and have society look at him like that, even though we overtly know he's not, is I find really interesting and a very good deliberate choice. Yeah, I think his casting's pretty spot on and, and there's a scene I want to talk about later that he is just like, perfect in that is like mm. our performance but i think that's so. the i mean you got a like context of so when did hannibal start hannibal started probably what um, i don't know i have no idea okay <laughs> um i think it would have started close to after this film because it's a 2012 okay. film yeah so at this point most people in western cinema contextually speaking would have known him as the villain in casino royale because mm. i came out in 2008 or 2009 and he plays a really good villain in that film. It's the first of the new, you know, first of the new, the, the Daniel Craig, Daniel Bond Craig films. Yeah. And he plays a really good villain in that. And so I feel like this comes back to the sort of purist movement ideology that um, obviously they're taking a, a guy who in Western cinema often gets conventionally put in as this foreign villain. I mean, mm. look at, if you look at some of his roles in western cinema even in the last five or six years you know he was the villain in doctor strange he mm. often does play villainous characters or if he's on the you know i've seen him a couple of times when he's in a protagonist position but he's always playing the foreign protagonist character right, like yeah. the character that doesn't speak much but he's he's on the good guy team because you need that so that comes back to that sort of producer control Mindset, i yeah. think where it's like whereas vintberg has taken him as this character that you know, often gets portrayed in that 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 villainous light, and gone. What if people think he's a villain, but he very clearly isn't? Well, what's interesting is that they almost play to that in the film, where <laughs> you know, when he's when his girlfriend sort of questions him, <laughs> and I, I know we're bouncing around a little bit. We'll get back on rails in a second, but um, he doesn't outright just say, "I didn't do this." He sort of has this menacing presence 
about the accusation. He sort of stands tall and he sort of has this, not a deranged look, but like this exhausted look that really plays to you right. He sort of has a bit of a villainous look. And Hannibal premiered in April 2013. So basically the same year as this film. That's nuts. Yeah, so definitely Casino Royale would have been the, I think the the Western if a Western viewer watches this film for the first time, that's going to be what they take into it. I think. Right. Um, and you know, it's interesting. You're right that he does carry that sort of thing, but the fact that he doesn't get so defensive, I think, comes more from the fact that he knows he didn't do anything wrong, but at the same time, he also is aware that if he overreacts mm. like overcorrects that can have just as much of a negative effect like if he gets right. really arced up and really defensive and and i think it comes back to how pure purely focused his character is mm. like vindenberg has a very good way of keeping him inside his character and i mean right. like like his character from In the start head, is very yeah. it's very clear that he's a very quiet sort of nice character Mm. but he's not like he's never like super animated prior to this event occurring so why would he become super animated well the the most animated he get when he's playing with the kids and he's like hopping around and stuff or the kids Mm. are hitting with the pillow like that is the moment where he even gets slightly animated mm -hmm. is when he's passionate about playing with his kids and walking uh clara home and stuff like that so we established he's a good character yeah but even with even when he's walking clara home he's not like super like it's very casual touch it's like he's talking to honestly like an adult sometimes um and his interactions with adults are very reserved and very quiet like he actually probably yeah like you said the most animated he does get is actually around kids not around adults because he's because honestly and this is a big thing. It's it's the emphasis on his relationship. He has better relationships with kids, including his son, mm. than he does with adults. Because, you know, obviously he's going through this divorce with his wife. Um, you know, he's got good relationships with, like, you know, he's got a really good, you know, lifelong friend. But it, for the most part, even when he's at those big gatherings with all of the, the men getting drunk together, mm. he's one of the more quiet and more reserved out of all of them. Yeah. You know, he's not as shouty or boastful. He's, he's the one that, he, when he jumps in the river, he's fully clothed while his friend is naked and he's, mm-hmm. he's willies out. He's willy. <laughs> yeah. It's a word that he's a lot in this film. Um, yeah, no, and I, I think that's one of the genius aspects of this film. And there actually is a video on SBS On Demand, like a seven-minute video where half of it's just clips from the film, but it shows the director talking about the conscious decision Mm-hmm. to have him be clearly innocent from the beginning. There's no question. It's not a thriller. It It is just sort of this downward spiral of something that's uncontrollable spreading. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of is a bit like a virus, especially when you have like patient zero, in this case, Clara, who says this thing, who... I mean, I, we're going to talk about Clara a lot in this episode because I think that's... She's one of the most fascinating characters. And a lot of it is for reasons that we don't even see in this film. It's just mm-hmm. like the assumption of what's going to happen to her growing up. But... Uh, her influences and of course like the brother showing her like the pornography on the phone and and the, the parents arguing so she says quotes like you know get up their ass you know mm. she's sort of a sponge and it makes sense she's what five six years old yeah I don't know what her age uh, kindergarten is. so she'd be four or five yeah exactly very young um, and to your point that's something I didn't think about is um, Lucas does talk to her like an adult like they have these sort of yeah like obviously it's not talking about politics and stuff but it's very no. direct conversation <laughs> 
There's Clara, no, what do you think there's of the no government? over-touching. He never initiates touching right. unless she grabs to hold his hand. Yeah. Um, so it's very clear of that sort of... Um, what the relationship is at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He know like he very much establishes boundaries, um, but is still a responsible adult. Like, yeah, you know, obviously this kid is, you know, it's like when he sees Clara for the first time and she's lost, mm. and and of course he helps her because what human wouldn't help her? Yeah, and, and of course, well, even specifically, he says he's a teacher. I know it's a bit like vague because mm-hmm. like his wife makes fun of him for being a kindergarten. Yeah, but Carol? he was a high school teacher. Gotcha, okay. Like, they, they, but, well, they established he was a high school teacher. He lost his job because the school shut down. Yeah. Kindergarten, sort of his interim... He's in a bit of a... You know, obviously due to his marriage, right? He's in a transitional phase in his life. So yeah. his focuses right now lie mostly with the fact that he's in this job because he has no other place to be mm. with his skill set. He's trying to get full custody of his son and he's gone through a divorce so clearly the priorities on his list is not to just go straight back into another high school no position. of course but but to my point like he is a teacher that is what it is mm. and teachers tend you know they have that instinct to look after kids that's why they're in that business <laughs> i call it a business but mm. yeah, that's why they're in that field i mean I there are say. intentional choices the fact that he's the only man who works at this kindergarten center that's true yeah um like there's a like there are very deliberate choices to shape kind of this perfect misconception that it all starts with a child's truth Mm -hmm. and then um and that's going to be a big talking point of this is the child's truth Mm. and how that kind of got misconstrued and completely lost in translation and when you know clara admits to lying people then choose not to listen to her anymore then to choose to ignore her because they're on this they're on this witch hunt for Uh. Just quickly looking up Dog 2, which is a film we did for episode 6. Is that a Danish film? No. Oh, it's a Greek, Greek film. It's a Greek film. But that, that film also sort of touches on this idea. And to your point, I completely agree. That's why I compared it to a virus. is Because once patient zero is sort of away from that affliction, and even Clara is trying to tell people, I was just not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. He didn't do anything to me. It's too late. That virus has spread. And these parents, are, you know, like you said, they turn back and they're like, no, 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 you did the right thing. You don't have to lie now. But there is such a confliction of, you know, the belief that children can't lie, but then she's lying about lying. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's all in service of the adults believing in this common enemy. You know, we have to have this common enemy, and let's all turn on him immediately. Well, it's it's a mob a human, mentality. Yeah. It's mob mentality. It's it's fear mongering. It's and it's desire. It's humans would like to hate people and they like to collectively hate people together i just knocked my mic yeah but and i mean this is something that we see more and more every day i'm not going to get into the real world comparisons but i just think it's so well explored how everyone turns them and how little we actually see of it once that shift is made Mm -hmm. we don't really see a lot of the people it's a very um private film from mad nicholson's pov and then eventually his son for a period of time where Mm -hmm. the film becomes about him for like 20 minutes I, well, I so like, it, it, and I love that they get that moment where they give the son this 20 minutes sort of short in the mm. middle of the film because it really shows the cascading effects yeah. that this this act has led to not only affect Mads Mikkelsen's character but his son yeah. who has love and respect stays. and uh, for him and, and literally I use the term witch hunt and I'm sure that was the total intention with calling it the hunt. Right. 
is because a lot of it was out of conjecture. Like it was like the end of the day, they and I think they make this reference that it's the Chinese whispers effect. It's yeah, it's yeah. Uh, the longer that it gets more drawn out, the more conjecture, the more um, people are trying to fuel the fire, and more people are just making assumptions and yeah. and it's that power of gossip. So by the time it gets to the people that are working in the supermarket. It's like, what have they actually heard? Like yeah. what, 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 what is, what is truth? And what is like, it started with like, and a viral uh, comparison is perfect because it's like, you know, if we, if we take it, we honestly, we compare it to the world we live in right now. There are a <laughs> bunch of different strands from something that started in one thing. Yeah. And it's the same sort of thing. That's the power of gossip. It's like, you know, that butcher that won't serve him and is ready to physically abuse him while he's in yeah. the, the shop while everyone can see and no one does anything. No one cares, yeah. Um, what has he heard that makes him drive him to that level of violence? Is it yeah. the same Is it the same as what was said all that time ago by Clara to... Well, that, that's the thing. Is like almost immediately, you're right, the Chinese whispers comes in as, or maybe the other kids, he touched other kids as well. And in addition to that, they deliver these vague like symptoms like oh look out for these symptoms and it's like well you give such vague symptoms that mm. all the kids are like yeah you have got a bit of a headache oh i'm still wetting the bed at four years old mm-hmm. like things that frankly are not uncommon yeah and you're right it just spreads this narrative that we don't know because no one tells him yeah he asks what have i done and no one tells him because you know they want to keep it vague the people who tell vague stories they want to avoid the discomfort of telling these vague stories so when you know, the psychiatric guy talks to her and talks about did something come out of, you know, his willy and the, the teacher froze up. He's just putting words in the child's mouth at this point. They all are biting into this assumption. Mm-hmm. There's no real detective work going on because they just immediately assume the worst. And it's like it wasn't a... It wasn't a... And the fact of the matter is... is and they make a big emphasis of this is by the time it actually gets pushed into the legal system mm. we find out very quickly that the case unravels like right yeah you know it's not only the police uh, the policeman arresting like he never gets like there's never a scene where he's getting beat up in prison or anything like that and then no. he actually goes to court and gets acquitted of it because as the you know evidence his, of there's no basement. the evidence there is no basement which is a very clear like clear like well, this is just a blatant lie at this point. Like, yeah. and you know, it only happened. I mean, that 20 minute period only like for it the, all happens for the off sun, screen. it all happens off screen. And, mm. and it's only like the case only goes for, it goes for, you know, less than a couple months. And yeah, it's only drawn out because of how the legal system works. When the, when he actually gets to crunch time, it, it's over in a couple of days. Like, because, but the fact of the matter is it's not, it, the fact is if they had brought it to the legal authorities as straight away mm. the matter would have been resolved very quickly well, but they, it's the fact they, that they did report they, it straight away but you're right there's a there's a whole bureaucracy system that takes but the, it's the, like it it's like out. when the kindergarten teacher brings in this guy who might be of a psychiatric background but like you said he puts words in mouth and then he doesn't uh you know, we know he doesn't adhere to the um, confidence. Mm. You know, he's obviously like him and the kindergarten teacher. They spread it like wildfire. Yeah. Um, one through a professional outbound and he probably did it through just gossip and, and discussion. And, and 
watching that scene is you got to give full credit to the performance by um the girl who played clara because oh she's incredible she has a lot to do in this film um uh and annika wedekop her what a name. performance is really kind of the make or break i think of this film mm. i think if she had been really bad or really frustrating um or not subtle um honestly it would have ruined the film would have unraveled very quickly um and it's like you take that scene where you know he's talking about the lewd act to her and putting words in her mouth Uh, it's the subtlety of her looking out the window where the child's playing and she clearly just doesn't want to be in the room and she's willing to say anything to get out of the room not for any reason she's uncomfortable just because she wants to go play outside because she's a four-year-old um there, the only little gripes I have with the film are how quick. Um, it's like so she gets the conception of sort of the male genitalia through her older brother showing her, I think a pornography video. Yeah, with we her don't friend. see what it is. It's but, very like, we hear quick, it. We understand what she's. But seen. it's very quick. And yeah. it's just, for me, it's just a little bit... But she's a sponge. She's a child. I know she's a sponge, but yeah. I just think it was just... It's like when a child learns a swear word, and then, like, they learn a yeah. bad word, right? And But they have to hear it clearly and concisely in order to replicate it. Whereas that scene was so quick, I would have liked to have actually been just a little bit more like... This is where she gets the idea. Like, he walks past her, and it's over in about 30 seconds to a, a minute, that scene. She's sitting outside. He runs by with the, the video, mm. shows it to her, and then runs, um, you know, runs down the hallway. But I would have liked it to be a little bit more... It's one of those scenes I think is just a little too subtle. Like, it would have been nice if it was... Mm. She walked in on them watching it. And was there for a couple minutes, you know, just enough to really create that sort of imprint. See, I'm, yeah, I don't know, because like for me, it was perfect. Okay, I found, it. and and in addition to that, I like when she she makes the initial comment about Lucas about you know, oh, he's a man and I hate him, and he or or you know, he's ugly and stupid and and has a willy, and then the teacher, um, she laughs. So that sort of implies mm-hmm. to me there is sort of a a local understanding of like she already knows what a willy is that's not surprising to her mm. the next part of it being like you know well it comes back to it's surprise. like was the like when the man is questioning did something come out she doesn't know that because she never saw that part so i can kind right, of see right. what you're yeah. you're getting at like um because if she was there for too was, long she might have too much knowledge of the too film much makes knowledge sense yeah that's fair yeah. um i don't know like it might have it just felt like it was just a, and then there were there were things like you know like when she jumps on top of Mads Mikkelsen's character and kisses him on the lips, mm. and of course he reacts with very quick no nah, no nah, big no no um, you can only, your mum and dad can yeah only only, kiss you. only for mum and dad um, he's so good he's so good with those kids yeah I mean it kind of would have been it's interesting because it's like I with hindsight you're like oh he should have told someone ahead of time. Yeah. With hindsight, but yeah. Well, he just should have addressed it. Like, mm. it should have just... Like, that's one of those things that even if it... Like, and that might come back to... It comes back to there might be enough to saving grace in terms of the film's writing that he's a high school teacher, so he might not 
know how to deal with every aspect of preschool mm. education because there are right. certain educational differences in how to approach yeah. obviously early childhood kids versus well, adult he's, like he's, young adult he's kids. wiping a, like a kid's bottom in the bathroom like he wouldn't have to do that in a high school setting no but obviously but i see a point like the transition's still happening i mean it's very important that he only has one kid and that one kid's a son and the kids right um but that he's wiping in that scene is a is a boy like right. he's very good with handling that's a the good boys. point yeah because he had a boy. Well, they're mostly boys, I think. And I, but I think that that that's obviously a deliberate choice. Like, mm. if he had had a daughter, then obviously the whole dynamic changes a little bit. I think. Mm. Um, but the fact that he had a son means he knows how to engage with. That might be another thing. He might be able to engage with young son, boys better because he had a young boy, whereas right. he never had a young girl. Well, I a... think that that's more the perception that the people around him have mm-hmm. because he is objectively good with Clara yeah. and walking her home and you know making the, giving her Fanny to look after and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But I think the people around him might have the same thoughts that you're having, mm-hmm. that because he doesn't have a daughter, it's a different story. Yeah, I think it just comes back to... Oh, and the other, like, the other frustrating thing was she made that, that love heart oh, yeah. and then said that... Um, he gave it to her. Right. And it's like, I don't know where she gets that idea from. That one was a little bit like, I like, I know kids lie, but to jump to that, that's a big lie. That's not just a little, little lie, but I mean, they say it gets fixed very like quickly because she consistently says for over half the film that she was lying about it all. And she said silly things. And no well, one some, listens to very quickly. Sometimes she does jump back and forth. Because I thought the same thing. I'm like, wow, she is really consistent with it. But then when uh, Lucas's son comes to the house mm. and he spits on her and basically, why, why did you lie about my dad? Her immediate response is, I didn't lie. Yeah, it's true. And I thought that was fascinating that that's, that was in there in the middle of the film. My thing about Clara and why... I mean, all of this stuff, her performance mm-hmm. and all the intrigue about where she gets her ideas from, even the kiss itself, I kind of agree. It's like, we didn't see that setup. We saw the setup for, like, the willy. We saw the setup for her, you know, swearing because her parents are arguing. Mm-hmm. We didn't see the setup for the kiss, although you can argue maybe she just saw it on TV. Who knows? Yeah, but it's so. a bit much. Like, it, for me, it's like, and something, if an incident, like, that's one of those, like, little quip frustrations in writing because it's like, you feel like even if, and I'm trying to save it with the fact that he taught in high school and he didn't teach him in early childhood, but right. you would address that with, like, a superior, like, because that could be a problem. What if she does that to other, yeah, like, look, staff? Like, that's just, that, that, like... But then I, I do think that... It's pretty quick as well. Like, it's the same day that she kisses him that she ends up telling the teacher like those stories it's on the same day mm. so you could argue he was going to eventually but um i think you're right he's just kind of a quiet shy dude he's used to high school students he doesn't have to talk to other people about these things so i can buy it but well it, yeah. I, I, I mean it comes back to the assumption that he didn't think it would spiral out of control no, as much as it did exactly you know, or he thought maybe he thought he just handled it quietly and subtly but yeah and and to wrap up on clara really quickly my the whole driving question around her is what is going to happen when she grows up because i think the film is just vague enough that it could be one of two things it could be a that she grows up and learns that you know this horrible thing that she caused 
you know, not not necessarily her fault. And I think that's the mastery of this film is that there's really no one's fault, really, because like the kid, you can't. She's still young enough that you can't really blame mm-hmm. her for fibbing. And, the, and yeah, anyway, but um, either she grows up and learns that that was like a thing that she caused, and she feels horrible about it, or worse, she grows up so convinced by the people around her telling her that this thing has happened. That she grows up thinking that she mm. was assaulted as a child, and I think that's even a worse fate. Yeah, that's a that's definitely one of those. Um, and that's there's two real big questions, and that's one of the big mm. questions that comes out of the final, the epilogue yeah. of the film, um, which is an amazing epilogue, um, like that last 10, 15 minute stretch. Right. And I, I give him honestly, I give him credit for both this and another round. The last fifteen minutes, it's right. just like so good. Um, and this this is obviously totally way more quiet and not as... It's a very over, different tone from another one. very round. different tone. <laughs> but it's it's fascinating because it's his last interaction with Clara that she doesn't want to step on, on any of the lines and right. the whole floor is lined, so he actually picks her up. And yeah, I, that's the, like, an, the audience <laughs> animation that got out of me, the like the fact that he looked at her... Mm. And after this hell that he's been dragged through because of what started with her lie, the fact that he is willing to like pick her up and let, like there's a forgiveness there, which is fascinating because as an audience, I'm screaming at the TV, just walk away. Like if that was like the fact that I can put myself in his shoes mm. and go and want that's to do not the exact how, opposite thing. That really is a testament to how much of a protagonist protagonistic character he is like Mm. he really is just a genuinely good person and the fact that he is brave enough to do that while other people are there like and obviously and obviously given what happens 10 minutes later when he's in the forest hunting this deer and a gunshot goes off next to his head yeah and we never see who the person that shot them but it's very clear it's very clear that this is something that he'll have to deal with this doubt the rest right. of his life, yeah. The rest of his life. And it comes from the moment when his son's getting the hunting license. He's scanning the room of all these people that have... Yeah, I noticed that too um, this time, yeah. ...made his life a living hell for the last couple months. So it's also planted in that, and it's that cause and effect of that epilogue. That um, people that are still sort of shifting towards him, There's just looks. Look, there's enough looks. Yeah, yeah there's enough... The, the real thing is doubt. It's, yeah. it's yes, he's acquitted of it, and we we've moved on and we've forgiven him because... Some of us have acknowledged that the evidence wasn't at all um, true, right. and like his best friend and stuff like that. Yeah, forgiven, it looks like his best friend forgives like him. Like yeah. openly have forgiven him, but there's but the fact is this affected the whole community, yeah. mm. and much like every democratic community or every sort of microcosm society, not everyone mm-hmm. will unanimously not, no, no, agree. Yeah. yeah, and that means that there will be some people and you know in their society you know obviously guns and and violence is you know guns are are very accessible because they're encouraged to have hunting licenses and Mm. stuff in in denmark and scandinavia and because of their discipline and stuff but just that fear will always rest in the back of his head and it's sort of like and i've never seen the sopranos but everyone knows the sopranos ending is sort of that always look over your shoulder type of hard mm. cut this i love this film though because it, it has that last shot where he stands up and the camera sort of tracks up with him and he sort of has almost this hero stance mm. of like i'm going to i'm going to live with this 
like I'm going to stand up against this. And he sort of has that moment in the supermarket as well. Yeah. When he fights back and... Headbutts. The food. Yeah, that was a good headbutt. Yeah. <laughs> but it's... I think, like, his performance is really great, but I do have to give a shout-out to... Um, to Thomas Bird Larson. Yep, Theo. that's him. Nice. Um, and probably talk a little bit more about him uh, with another round, but mm. um, he is also in both films, and I probably preferred his performance in this film mm. over another round. I do but, too, yeah. Um, I mean, the character and the situation he's in is is so much more interesting from a performative standpoint. Yeah, obviously these two have been childhood friends, and, you know, part of me wants to believe these two are actually really good friends in real life. Wouldn't that be awesome? They probably are, I'm sure. Uh, I'd, I'd imagine Why would they be, yeah. I mean... Because they're around the same age. I mean, they even talk about it another round. They've known each other the longest. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of a, a cool sort of... I love these types of when... in They feel like in-house sort of... Like right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Situations and... Well, just the fact that it's the same cast or a lot of the same cast. Very close it's to the very, same It's very um, in-house, yeah. Um, and I find, yeah, like he's got some amazing scenes where that doubt... Not only does he have the moments of, of pure anger and, and spite for his friend and, and doubt this, this um, you know, that is constantly relayed. The fact that he forgives and they have that amazing exchange in the church mm. where he goes, yeah. I know, I know now, like just off a look, pure sight. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, what, that he did it? You honest, like this is the full confirmation. Because up until that point, we have never confirmed if his character fully believes that Lucas I, has touched his kid. I remember when the scene when um, he Lucas first goes to his house and tries to convince him, I didn't do anything to your daughter. And he's, he's trying to say, like, I don't know what to think. But he is, like, sobbing. Like, he he's like, my daughter, I think, just went through this situation. And I was sitting there laughing, like, dude, he, he knows exactly what he thinks he knows, that you yeah. totally did it. So he, I feel he does a complete one hundred and eighty. Okay, I actually think he never fully, fully believes it. Okay, like his wife fully believes it, like concrete fully yeah, believes it, definitely. And he's made to believe, but there's always it actually is that sort of inverted doubt. I think that there's he never gets to a hundred percent surety that Lucas did this horrible act, right? And. He's always the one. It's like when Lucas is stumbling out of the the shopping, like the shopping center, yeah, yeah. and he's bloodied, so and 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 he's the one. He he's like, so maybe cool. we should go talk to him, and and and, and the wife is like, no, 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 don't do it. And um, there's okay. always just enough there. Like it's like when Clara says to him, "Oh, I was just lying." There's an element of him that actually goes, "Maybe you were, mm. but you're my daughter, and I can't." There's, he has one of the best like conflicted characters, and in that moment when he's like, I can see it in his eyes. You can tell that's the moment he goes, "Oh no, he didn't actually do this." Yeah, like because that is some of the best non-dialogue exchange. Oh, it's so good. The, the fact that they can paint that look on their face, full credit. That's just full acting credit that, right there. That just, whole, just that scene in general, like. Obviously, the balls of, of Lucas to come to the church on and Christmas Eve. So everyone's mm. going to be there, the whole town. And his, like, breakdown that sort of leads to him running up and, and attacking Theo. Just, like, it's, He's it's broken. so like, good. It's the final break. It's his, it literally is his breaking point. Yeah. The fact that that leads to 
um, he's, obviously he's so his character, you know, coming and literally break, sort of breaking bread with him and being yeah. like, I know you didn't do this and I'm so sorry I've put you through this. Yeah. And that forgiveness, like there is that moment of pure forgiveness and a very low key lighting. They don't turn any lights on. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it's, it's great. And it's, it full, full credit to both of them. Cause they really, yeah, it, that scene is just heavy <laughs> oh it's it's incredible it's so incredible i i will admit when that's that when i watched it because i rewatched it a second time last night i did go back on letterbox and upped my score after the <laughs> church and i was like oh this film's too good so i, I bumped it to four and a half stars there you um, go do you have incredible. anything else you'd like to add yeah i just got a few little dot points slash questions okay i wanted to throw at you um so uh nadja i think that's the the name of the girlfriend who sort of she comes and come, she comes and goes really quickly in this film. I thought it was interesting. And comes back at the end. Yeah, she's at the end. I do like the 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 situation. I think it's important to have to show them meet and uh, fall into a relationship, mm-hmm. so that it kind of stings more when he kicks her out of the house. What was the deal with her speaking so much English? And I know well, she's not she's not Danish. I guess not. I think she's, she's not Am- English. I think she's I American. I don't think so. Because I French. Actually, I, I think she might be French. I looked her up. And I'll quickly look her up again. You might be right that she's French, but she's definitely not like English or, or American. She's, um, yeah, she's, yeah, she's definitely of, Rap- she's a foreigner. Rapaport, what a name. Um, Rapaport. Uh, December. T- oh, she was born on Boxing Day, nineteen seventy-one. Is a Swedish film and stage actress born yeah. in Broma. She's a she's a she's a foreign. Um, she's definitely a foreigner to Denmark. Right, right. Because she even. Some of her Danish is a bit broken when okay. they first interact. Like right. she like tries to say things that, she, and sometimes she stops and then she replaces for English. Mm. And even um, one of the one of the kindergarten teachers asked, like, do you, would you want do you want me to repeat this in English? Mm-hmm. Which I thought was interesting. And my my guess is that that's kind of in here because she has a different reaction to everyone. She sort of laughs when she first hears hears about it. Um, yeah, and she's out and it creeps defensive. in over time. Yeah. yeah, there is a bit of that, especially yeah, the interaction. Her, her the reaction is definitely like she sort of laughs, mm-hmm. and and, and as, as like a, I don't know, it's just a human being. I guess I'm like, oh god, that I cringe when she laughs because like that is this is not the time to laugh. <laughs> um, so the other things I wanted to mention is Zeke. Do you consider this a Christmas movie or not? No, <laughs> no. It's like the diehard of Danish Christmas movies. No. It's not uh, a Christmas film. Fair enough. But Zeke, it takes place on <laughs> Christmas Eve. Um, <laughs> and the other thing... All right, so this is actually a fun one. I'm going to talk a bit about coming back to the Dogma 95 uh, filmmaking movement mm-hmm. because obviously this film is very clearly inspired by that movement and that there's not a lot of non-diegetic music and it's all shot on like handheld. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a couple of examples where... Um, it's like a dolly or a zoom instead. Very rare. It's like a moment, like when when uh, Clara admits the line for the first time. That's like a dolly push in. It's a very rare case of like them using some other camera movement. But the, uh, for Dogma ninety five, there's actually a list. There's actually like the ten commandments for what uh, a film has to abide by to count as a Dogma ninety five film. So I'm going to read this to you now. Keep in mind, this isn't considered technically a Dogma 95 film, mm-hmm. um, but it's obviously directed by one of the the people who inspired the movement, who created yeah. the movement. So I want to go through these and, and see if we agree whether the, the hunt abides by these 10 rules. Are you ready? 
Yeah, go for it. So number one is shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must be not, must not be brought in. If a particular prop is necessary for the story, then the location must be chosen where the prop can be found. I'm going to say this is very clearly a tick. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the hunt, you, like you said, it's a very localized, very small town film. There's no props in there that are like crazy. I think I saw an iPod, but I'm guessing you can just buy an iPod mm-hmm. in demo. I'm sure that's <laughs> not tricky. Um, number two is the sound must never be produced apart from the images or vice versa. As in music must not be used unless it occurs within the scene is being the shot. Diegetic. So diegetic, non-diegetic. I'm pretty sure there's non-diegetic music in here. Every now and then, there's a track or two. Mm-hmm. Do you recall if there's... There's obviously like the, the there's definitely music. Yeah, there's definitely... I think there's a record at some point. Mm. Um, no, I can't recall any off the top of my head, so maybe. Potentially. Yeah, I think I did notice it. I can't tell you which scenes though. Oh, opening scene. I'm pretty sure there's... Oh, oh you might be right. There's a bit of fun music in there i think that's they're playing um oh, i can't remember what they're playing i get the two mix because we've watched them in such close proximity um i think they both um using another round i think they both have music at the start of the film another round definitely has, has non-diegetic film um definitely has non-diegetic music yeah i think they both have non-diegetic music. okay so they didn't completely abide by the but it is a pretty quiet film, you're right. So mostly. Number three, the camera must be handheld. Any movement or immobility obtainable in the hand is permitted. Mm. So yeah. if you count like the very occasional dolly zoom or push in, then yeah, this film totally abides. Well it's by exceptions it. to the rule. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the exception makes sense. Number four, the film must be in colour. Special lighting is not acceptable. If there was too little light for exposure, uh, then either the scene is cut or they attach a small lamp so to natural, the camera. Pure naturalistic lighting. Yeah. Um, well, you even mentioned the low light in Lucas's house at the end. So yeah, I, I would say that that's pretty pretty adherent. I mean, obviously, night lighting is very interesting. I mean, you've got to try and I get what they mean. Like they mm. want to. It's just got to be naturalistic lighting, but you can still use lights. I think to create naturalistic lighting. Like, yeah. Exactly. Well, that that's the thing. I think it's a special lighting. So I'm guessing it's talking about like, you know, like a surreal studio, you know, under the skin, Scarlett Johansson in a black void. I think that's what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I, the film, I think that's a tick. Uh, number five, optimal work and filters are forbidden. I'm going to assume there are no that's filters. Like lots and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I guess sluts and um, yeah, I'm thinking of like post-production filters. <laughs> Get 16 millimeter grain in your Sony Vegas project. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, we can guess that. Yeah, I'd say so. It's hard to tell sometimes. Uh, number six, the film must not contain superficial action, as in murders, weapons, etc., must not occur. I mean, there are rifles, but I wouldn't call that superficial action. No, and no one actually dies. Yeah, no one dies. I don't. No one's actually shot. The only like real violence is punching. You know, so people no are, jet, pe- like people are shot. Oh, superficial violence. So someone can die in the film, but it just can't be. Yeah, I guess like a murder is a superficial. Um, yeah, well, that's the that's. Oh the well, you know what, Fanny? They fucking murder Fanny. The dog. Yeah, that's true. But I would also say How super superficial, like that's what it comes back to. It's like someone murdering for murder's sake, more than yeah, yeah. Rather than like fa- like five hundred people are murdered in an Avengers film. That yeah. kind of logic, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, if you take this film. Um, there's very much motivation part. And it's off screen too. It comes back to... That's true. That is true. We don't see it at all. That's probably what it is because it's about 
the, the character's reaction to the death. To the death. It's not about shooting the death. That's mm-hmm. a really good point. So let's give it a tick. Uh, seven, temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden. So basically the film takes place today uh, in this location. So if mm-hmm. we shot a film that took place in a, a Perth, Australia, 2021, it abides by this rule. Mm-hmm. So, And I think that applies for this film. It's very good. So no time. flashbacks. No, oh, That's a good point. No flashbacks. Um yeah, because I feel like it could, linear, be, it could still be period, but it just can't switch times. That's a really good point. Yeah. Okay. I see. You're, you're getting this list better than I am. Yeah. I think I'm taking it too literally, and you're like, no, oh, but this means this. Number eight. Genre films are not acceptable. Um, I mean, a drama is such a vague. It's not a thriller. A psychological drama is what I'd call this. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I would say, yeah, I, I get what that means. Like, yeah, no genre tropes. Yeah, like, no, you can't do a pure like, horror. But you can do a horror fit. Like, something like um, Prisoners mm. is a good example the of a that's horror, like a horror film. Quote that's unquote. a horror film. Yeah. But it's... Or Get Out. Uh, Get Out would probably be a bit... Nah, Get Out wouldn't but, do it. Yeah, but you're right. Get Out is way more complex than, like, Paranormal Activity. <laughs> so... Yeah, I think I, my Prisoners yeah. comparison... Or, honestly, like, stuff like... Potentially, like, True Detective. Mm. Yeah, because it feels like a mix of different genres. It's not one particular... Mm. It's like when you go on the like letterbox and it has like seven different genres. Yeah. Or even WandaVision is like it's a sci fi superhero fantasy yeah, action I, I, mystery. I'd yeah, say it's... Prisoners is probably the most <laughs> westernized example I could use for that. Yeah, cool. Wolf Creek. Wolf Creek. Is that not a pure horror? I haven't seen it. So I mean I wouldn't say it's like tropically horror. Okay. That's Wolf Creek enough. two probably is, but like at the end of the day it's what it is is just a bunch of tourists going out to the middle of the desert and a guy hunting them down. I mean, right? I guess he's technically a horror villain, but I would say it's it's not it's not conventionally horror. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, yeah, I'm gonna say this is not a genre film per se, so I think we'll give it the tick there. Number nine is the film format must be Academy 35 millimeter. I guess I I didn't look up if it was shot on film. Mm. Or not. I assume it is. Yeah, couldn't um, tell you. Yeah, I mean, this is a really renowned director in Denmark. I, I imagine if he wanted to shoot on film, he could. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's good friends with Lars von Trier. I don't agree. That one. That one's a bit... But like, again, this is like the most pure okay. rules. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I, Well, it's. A, I think that that's an appropriate list for 1995, but digital films. Oh, that's a good now. point. Yeah. That's true. Because in 1995, they're probably thinking about... 8 and 16 millimeter. It'll be interesting if there's a revised version because nowadays very like to shoot on film is a very like it's a big specific. Arsenic, but it's yeah. very like and when they do shoot on film they make an emphasis that we shot this on film. Right. Um Yeah. Most indie films and stuff like that would be digital. Right. Okay. Um, well, let's give it a... I'm assuming this was shot on film. Yeah, it's yeah. Hard. I, I, I didn't check. And number 10, this is interesting. The director must not be credited. Which, I don't know what... Does that mean, like, they just don't have a credit in the film? Like, their name's not on the credits? That's a weird one. Well, he definitely didn't adhere to that. <laughs> His name is definitely in here. Maybe not on the poster? Maybe, like, the advertising? Maybe. That's such a vague thing, though. I mean, I'm, I kind of get that. Like, the fact is, it's like you should know this is my artwork. Yeah, like, that's a good point. It'd be like the equivalent would be like if you looked at a Van Gogh, you know it's a Van Gogh right. before it. Like, he doesn't need to put 
this was like like a little signature in the corner, yeah, Matt, like Matt Groening on the bottom, right? Like, <laughs> like when you look at a, a Van Gogh piece of art, you know it's yeah. Van Gogh. Like, if it'd be like watching if you watched all of the Tarantino films from the nineties and you just took his name out, you would know they're all Tarantino. Films. Yeah, the, the, the directorial style is is very clear. That's what it is. It's yeah. trying to be like okay, people that watch this can appreciate this without. I don't agree with that at all. But. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. The um. I you, like I said, you're really getting this list better than I am. I feel like, That's fair. but um, yeah. So, uh, like I said, this isn't a Dogma fi- uh, 95 film. There's actually only 31 films that are considered Dogma 95 films, and I think the only one from uh, from Vindenberg is uh, Feasten, which is 1998. Yeah, uh, that's the, the. It's called the in English. It's um, I've got it here. Yeah, it wouldn't come up for me what the English title was. Let me just quickly. I'm not yeah. sure. Well, anyway, out of those ten rules, I think this film. We agreed that this film applies to uh, one, two, three. The four. celebration, I believe it is. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's it. That's yeah, correct. I think I was talking to Damo about it, and he was he was raving about the celebration. He loves that film, so I got to watch it. I also have to watch it. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's only available oh. on Amazon in the states. Okay. Rip and dip. <laughs> so we've uh, accumulated that he followed at least eight of these ten rules. The only two being that he credits himself as the director and there is non-diegetic music from time to time. So that's a pretty, a pretty good effort. For 2012, yeah. Yeah, holy moly. Yeah. No dramas. Well, uh, what is your highlight scene for this film, Jake? Um, I mentioned it earlier. I mentioned it again. The, 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 the scene at um in the church is just incredible. His performance as he's yeah. breaking down is just incredible but i want to give a, a special shout out to the supermarket scene instead just the the free act structure within that scene of him mm-hmm. coming in being chastised and punched and kicked and thrown out and he comes back in and and, and fights and does yeah, the head butt yeah. <laughs> i would have to say yeah, the church scene steals the show yeah it's such a great payoff breaking moment and leads into that epilogue which is honestly the epilogue gets a big shout out it's a great sequence mm. um yeah, so The Hunt is currently out on SBS On Demand. It is. It's also on DVD. Uh, you can get it on DVD. DVD. That's how I first saw it. But um, it's yeah. an excellent, excellent film. Yeah, absolutely. Got to go check it out. Speaking of things to check out, Jake, what is new in cinemas and streaming platforms this week? <laughs> um, bit of a bit of a shorter week. Last week was pretty packed, so thank God. Uh, Rocket Man comes to Netflix this Sunday the 28th. Mm. I really got to rewatch you that film. You need to rewatch that. Yeah, do oh, I own? No, I don't. I don't own it, so that'll be a good chance to watch. We'll be going to karaoke tonight and singing Rocket Man. Oh, there you go, perfect. <laughs> uh, coming to stand this week, there's a bit of a, uh, a consensus here. We got Casino, American Gangster, and Scarface '83. Ooh. All coming to stand this week. It's a bit of a theme. Films I have all caught in the last year. Nice. I haven't seen American Gangster or Scarface. I still haven't seen Scarface actually. Did I, did I even log American Gangster on my? I'm sure you did a, a while ago, or after the look. Yeah, I did enough. watch it. The other one is Hot Fuzz. That also comes to stand this week. Great film. We still got to do it. We got to do one with Danny. We have her on every time we do an Edgar Wright film, mm-hmm. <laughs> including Scott Pilgrim. Uh, we'll see. Uh, on Disney Plus this week is Myth: A Frozen Tale. So this is actually an animated short set in the world of Frozen Two, but it's actually, believe it or not, a VR film. So you can watch it with the Oculus Rift. So that's really interesting. I and did log it. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Yeah. And finally, coming to cinemas, yeah, Blackbird, which is a remake of the Danish film Silent Heart. There we go. Keeping in theme with the Danish films. Uh, and follows a terminally ill mother who arranges to bring her family together one last time before she dies. 
And finally, Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry, is a musical documentary that follows the teenager, singer-songwriter as she rises to stardom and navigates life on the road, on stage, and at home with mm-hmm. her family. What is with this surge of, like, music biopics on, like, 19-year-old musicians? <laughs> Oh, it's all about the it's all about their journey through yeah, puberty. It's, it's like we just had the Shawn Mendes one. We had, uh, you know, it was Taylor Swift. She did this. She ruined it for everyone. Ugh. No worries. Well, thankfully, mind. we're not watching any of those <laughs> next week on the show. But Jake, what are we watching? Believe it or not, Zeke. Next week on the show, we're watching another round. <laughs> consume alcohol on a daily basis to see how it affects their social and professional lives no worries well this is another thomas vintenberg we're doing a sophia coppola i know back to back um back to back double science fiction double feature an older film and then a newer Um, film yeah we've seen this already yeah we went and saw this last thursday um we've both got our lunar privilege cards now so (laughs) (laughs) we're cashing in on those um yeah very excited to talk about this next week on the show. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with another round. <laughs>